Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Allison Incero, Senior Editor of the American Journal of Managed Care. During the last installment of the Institute for Value-Based Medicine of 2019, an initiative of the American Journal of Managed Care, oncologists and others shared their thoughts, successes, and frustrations with the current oncology care model. The October event took place a little more than a week before CMS released its request for information for Oncology Care First, which is slated to follow the OCM when that payment model in 2021. In today's Managed Care Cast, we bring you portions of the question and answer session and panel discussion that evening. The panel was moderated by co-chair of the event, Aaron Liss, the Director of Strategy and Business Development of Tennessee Oncology, as well as co-chair Dr. Steven Slicer, also of Tennessee Oncology, and chair of the Quality and Value Committee of One Oncology. They were also joined by Michael Kologe, Chief Innovation Officer of Advi Health, Dr. Miranda Lamb, a radiation oncologist with Dana-Farber, and Dr. Robert Daly, a physician at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center and part of their Strategy and Innovation Center. Dr. Dr. Daly, I'm going to ask you to stay up there, uh, as well as uh, uh, Dr. Lamb and Dr. Cloger, if you could join Dr. Daly on the stage for Q&A. Dr. Lamb, who earlier in the evening had presented the findings of her 2018 study looking at whether accountable care organizations had any effect on spending in cancer care, was asked by one participant whether the difference in outcomes between ACOs and non-ACOs had anything to do with whether the organizations had an integrated medical record in order to coordinate care among many specialists. Unfortunately, we don't have that information. Um, I think it would be really interesting to see. I think there is a, if I'd have to go back and double check, but I think for the ACOs to be an ACO, there is sort of a minimum level of in, an integrated or a elect, electronic medical record system, but you're absolutely right to have it integrated to see all specialty notes is a really important thing. And unfortunately, I don't have that information. I would, sorry, this is Stephen. I would speculate since it was voluntary that it's self-selected for groups that are more likely to have an integrated system than groups that are not. So if anything, I would imagine the bias would be towards ACOs, but I'm speculating. No, that's a good point. I think that's a general issue with voluntary programs are usually the ones that are potentially ready to be part of them will partake. So I wanted to, uh, I heard this question asked uh, in in various forms uh, kind of during dinner. you know, there was a slide, uh, Dr. Kaloja, you showed about the U.S. oncology pathways data and, you know, the uh, success in, in, in reducing costs that was shown in that study. If I believe that was what I would refer to as the pre-immunotherapy era, um, if, if that's fair. Uh, and I think this, you know, my question would be for each of the panelists. How do we pay for innovation in cancer care? Uh, you know, we've you know we've just saw an, a really remarkable case study of all of the effort that can go into care delivery innovation. Uh, but do we have 
any way of getting at that uh, 60%, what's the right way to do that? Um, you know, and uh, Dr. Lamb, if you could, you know, think about that from the radiation oncology perspective, and then uh, Dr. Kaloje for, for uh, you know, from a payer standpoint for medical oncology. So there are two different questions um, inherent in what you just asked. The first half is what do we do with the therapeutic armamentarium that we have right now? And the answer is, and all of you know this, there are still opportunities. About uh, three years ago at ASCO, Deb Schrag uh, published and reported on uh, a study in advanced uh, first-line metastatic colorectal cancer comparing the use of two targeted therapies. One of them was 30% more effective excuse me, 30% more expensive, with extensive clinical data showing therapeutic equivalence. Now, I ask you, why not use a cheap one? This is good. Now, I know the answer to that. It's because when you have a patient sitting in front of you, you think you know the better treatment. And I would stipulate that maybe you do and maybe you don't. But if you don't, why not use a cheaper treatment? there is an obvious reason for it, which the folks in the payer community will say. It's because you make more money when the therapy is more expensive. They actually really legitimately believe that. They do. And I've gotten tired of arguing that that's not what people do in the therapeutic space, but they believe it. So there are such opportunities. In fact, we're going to see the emergence of such an opportunity with biosimilars. Now, I will confess to you, First of all, that I have no financial stake in this game whatsoever. Many of the clients that I work with make biosimilars, and some of them don't. However, at market entry, we're going to see both supportive and therapeutic biosimilars come in at maybe 15% less. And we're going to see that grow substantially, just as we did in the generic space, as there are more entrants in the market. How low will it go? I don't know, 50%, 75%. Now, in the, in the supportive care space, I think practitioners have a generally easier adoption as opposed to the therapeutic space because they're worried they're going to shortchange their patients, to which I will say only this. There's 10 years of experience in Europe with the therapeutic agents, and there is no difference. Now, we can believe American patients are different, but I doubt it very much. If you have HER2-positive breast cancer, you have HER2-positive breast cancer. So I think there are opportunities in the armamentarium we have now. Now, we ain't seen nothing yet. And the reason we ain't seen nothing yet is because we ain't seen gene therapy come to oncology, and CAR-T has been hard enough. You guys can't do it anyways. Um, but ultimately, those therapies are so expensive, and more importantly, they're potentially curative. That's incredible. I mean, really incredible. But they only are probably going to cure a percentage of patients. So I think the payers, and clearly the government, 
is going to be interested in a model in which you pay if it works and not so much if it don't. Now, I didn't say you don't pay anything. Pay something. But this idea that we're going to go to some sort of outcomes-based payment model for really expensive curative therapies I think is extremely attractive. There are bugs to be worked out, but it's fair, right? If you're bringing the kind of value that you, you say you're bringing with your innovative therapy, I'm happy to reward you for it. But remember, most everything is being approved on the breakthrough pathway these days. That's just the way it is. And we really, really don't know how good that stuff is. So until we do, put your money where your mouth is. That's my view. Uh, we'll see if that happens. I think CAR-T has been just a total mess from the very beginning. Um, when CAR-T comes for myeloma, which is soon, we better know what we're going to do by the time CAR-T comes for myeloma. Because honestly, CAR-T for relapsed and refractory pediatric ALL, it's just not a public health problem. Myeloma, it's a big deal. We've got a lot of drugs that work in myeloma. People are on them forever, and they're all expensive as hell. So we, myeloma is the test case for, for the value of this kind of treatment approach. I think within um, radiation oncology, we don't have the problem, obviously, with expensive drugs, but we do have our technology. Um, and the technology is always getting better. You know, I think it, the question that you ask of how do we pay for innovation within medicine and within Radonc is something that I think all of us wonder in Radonc because we, there are, for instance, um, you know, when we move to IMRT, which is a type of radiation that I think many of us really believe has improved uh, the delivery of radiation for most of our patients. If you were to ask us if we wanted to get IMRT over the prior type of radiation, we would all think that it is better. Um, and there is some data to prove that in some cases, but it is much more expensive. Um, and so there are definitely times where we get questioned by insurance companies whether this is worth it or not. Um, and in some cases, I think, yes, most of the time it is. Um, and so it is paid for more. And over time, the reimbursement has gone down, which I think is actually appropriate because we've learned to use the technology. Initially, when it came out, there was a lot more resources, um, a lot more learning, a lot more time that went into it. Um, and as we became more efficient, more sort of facile with the technology, um, it has, the reimbursement's gone down, but also, you know, we've, I think it's appropriate in those cases. Um, as I mentioned with the bundles, the thing I do worry about is there, our technology continues to really explode. Um, you know, we, we try to use these newer technologies in different indications because we really do think it is important. We try to put people on clinical trials. They're not federally funded, but, you know, they are important clinical trials that are multi-institutional, sometimes single institution. And my concern really is that if people don't get paid for the extra resources to try to test these models um, or to test these new technologies, we, we may sort of stall as a field. And so I think finding that balance, I don't have the answer to, but I know that we all sort of are 
thinking about what the best way is, and maybe it's partnering with the med device companies and having a period of time where um, we work with them to have some of, you know, some of these new technologies tested for some time to prove before payment. Because right now the way things come out is it sort of gets approved and then, you know, we use the technology, we bill for it, um, and then it catches CMS's radar. And I think that's partly what has happened to Radonk is, um, you know, radiation is a small proportion of cost for an overall cancer patient, um, but, you know, Things like IMRT and proton therapy have sort of really caught the eye of CMS. Um, and so we're sort of low-hanging fruit, even though we may not be the biggest spenders within cancer care. Um, I think that is something that we are worried about moving forward is, you know, we want to make sure we continue to innovate to improve care for our patients, but it can be expensive and we need to find a better way to find that balance. Now, one, one important thing to remember about radiation oncology, and I think medical oncologists don't necessarily think of this all the time, is that um, payers treat radiation oncology much like a medical device, which is to say that FDA approval does not in any way, shape, or form guarantee coverage. It's not mandated in any way, which is to say that um, payers can develop policies based on their perception of clinical utility, the value the therapy brings. And that's why, for example, proton beam radiotherapies had such a hard time. Proton beam radiotherapy was approved by the FDA eons ago, eons ago, um, but through the lens of a medical device, that it was safe. Um, the, the payers have always struggled because the premium on proton beam radiotherapy is a third or more, right? And, and the clinical outcomes, well, let's just say the literature is, is a little bit inconsistent. Um, and so payers are much more inclined to aggressively manage radiation because they don't have to cover it. Another physician in the audience expressed concerns and frustrations with how CMS will use coding information submitted by doctors to build payment for future bundled payments in radiation oncology with fears that if he does not report every single code now, his practice may possibly be shortchanged in the future. Dr. Kaloje, who used to work at Aetna, responded. Um, when, I, when I was at Aetna, I was very interested in, I, I knew next to nothing about radiation oncology. I'm a medical oncologist. Um, you know, some of my best friends were radiation oncologists. <laughs> as this and um, we had radiation oncology benefits companies coming to us all the time trying to sell it. And they had two value props. One, claim scrubbing, and two, modality shift. And I said, I can do this myself. I don't need them. So I hired a consultant to teach me about coding, and then I realized I couldn't do it myself. And the fact of the matter is that um, based on the very limited look we did, uh, for a given disease, there was a ridiculous variability in the, in the type of codes. I mean, you guys get paid for shoving a piece of styrofoam under somebody's backside, right? Right. And if you build that frickin' code, if you build that code every week, I'm thinking that styrofoam's probably good for more than a week. So here's the problem. They actually don't believe you. They don't trust you. So let's take a step back. Why do you build a bundled reimbursement 
It's, you build the bundle reimbursement if there is variability that is, that is not clinically justifiable. And so building a bundle is to eliminate all that extraneous stuff and bring you back in. Yes, they're, con con they're concerned that you're not going to do a good job, and that's why they want you to submit all the claims, uh, the codes. I, I don't think necessarily they're going to use that to, to downshift. Frankly, I'm not sure they can downshift, given what I've seen what the fee schedule is, <laughs> which is kind of tough. Um, but, but I think they want to understand what they're paying for and the te technical component of, of what you're, the care you're delivering. Um, let's be honest. There's a couple things, both the variability in the, in the coding. There's the desire for promoting hypofractionation. And there is some interest in reducing uh, high expensive um, uh, modalities. So um, with all due respect, the evidence that IMRT is better than 3D conformal is actually very, very limited. Just a couple of diseases. And um, they know it. So uh, giving IMRT for a, a solitary bone metastasis, you may think that's a great idea. The payers don't. They think that's nuts. And believe me, I they think see, that's nuts too. They see the a way. lot of those claims. They see a lot of those claims. They do, and you know it's not. Listen, come on. We're among friends. You know it's it's happening. So the problem is that ninety percent of the good doctors are being dragged down by the ten percent. But what's a payer supposed to do? I mean, they're stuck. Um, so, also, I think that the reimbursement, of course, for commercial payers will always be superior to what radiation, what the what Medicare pays. That's not going to change, I don't think. You'll see more pressure on modality, though. I think you will. Yeah, I think we already see it quite a bit with yeah. a lot of companies, you know, outsourcing to Evacor. Yeah. So we have a lot more peer to peer, and I think. Because of that, people are actually trying to publish some of their data more, whereas you're, a lot of us go off of gut and say, of course it's better. There's a couple of studies. But now we're asked to really show the data for it. Yeah, I saw some data a long time ago about hypofractionation and breast cancer, which showed that where you trained was the most important predictor of whether or not you're willing to embrace hypofractionation. And you know what? That's not hard to believe. And I think that's actually one of the best sites to pilot because we know there's good data. Yeah, no, there, I agree. And we have um, other data showing that the uptake for that is not actually very good no, for hypofractionation not. in breast. Um, I will say hypofractionation in other disease sites is not there yet, um, but in breast, I think that would almost be a, sort of a perfect pilot to get people in the right direction. But for these other sites, um, I think you're right. It's all. It's more about just decreasing the variation in the pay is what they're really going yeah. for. And then, I mean, if you look at their complicated model, I know we looked at an OCM model earlier. I think the Radonk payment model is also somewhat complicated. But oh god, it's worse. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, it's crazy well, it's to look at, worse. and there's all these yeah. discount factors. But basically, they're they are just trying to pay the minimum. Dr. Daly, who discussed how Sloan Kettering is using predictive data analytics to improve care for patients with cancer by avoiding preventable hospitalizations for 10 common conditions, was asked about overhead costs and reimbursement, considering that the program requires additional staff while keeping patients out of the hospital. So we were looking at value in a couple of different ways when we were launching this program. We really wanted to better understand how can we reach out to our patients at home? Because we had a, the issue where we had overcapacity of our hospital. So as we've expanded into the regional networks, 
we have more and more patients coming into New York City to be hospitalized. And because of that, there's not beds to support all those patients. So what the key goal of this program was to really reduce these hospitalizations, can we take better care of these patients at home to prevent that? So that was really what we were looking for when we were thinking about value. But then we were also thinking about, okay, next steps as far as oncology care. More and more patients are wanting to be having these consultations at home, the toxicity checks at home. How can we start building that framework in order to introduce that for our patients? So we weren't focused on cost in this pilot at all. We were really looking at, is this something feasible where we can start to see a signal that one, patients will be engaged in this. Will they fill out these assessments? Will they respond to this team? Will they be accepting of doing televisits when they're in their kitchen? So that would work in a bundle payment thing. Yeah. Say if you set it up right, I guess. Yeah. <clears throat> and so we're really struggling with the cadence of how frequently do you need to be checking in with these patients. So right now we're checking in with them daily and patients are very adherent with that and I think they're adherent from that, from that because they're getting responses back from their team. Um, but do they need to be checking in that frequently? Could we potentially use the data that we're getting from their patient reported outcomes to then alter the frequency with which we're checking with them? So if they're having no alerts for a long period of time, would that be a time then to start thinking about doing what you said, making it more voluntary, where they would just fill out the survey, maybe just you know a check, I'm doing fine, and they would just have to check that every week. Is there a way that we can reduce the barriers even further? I think in talking with the patients, what they value the most about the program is that it's very low barriers to self-directed communication with a knowledgeable person at any time. So they don't have to wait for me to get done with seeing a patient in clinic which might be six o'clock to call them back. They're able to kind of choose when they want to speak to someone um, and get a response back to help them manage their symptoms. So um, I think, what you're, what you, is there a simpler way to do this? I think absolutely, and we'll have to refine the approach as we go. When so, we're dealing with very high risk, we wanted to um, be, uh, we, that's how we chose that cadence. So I have a great anecdote. It'll be a good way to finish the night. So a few years ago, I was asked to sit on a panel at one of these health technology meetings. And there was somebody who got up there talking about Fitbits and how uh, they wanted patients to bring in their Fitbit recordings into their doctor's office to go through them with the doctor. And I have no idea whether it's useful information. I know that I, what the hell do I do with this, right? So when I hear about this, and I think it's great, all of us know that there are patients who get in trouble and there are patients who just don't get in trouble. They just are. And is this better than me asking, Steve, who gets in trouble? I know young men with testis cancer puke like crazy. I know it, because I did it for a long time. I know young women getting adjuvant adriamycin-based chemotherapy puke a lot. I know that if I started the Taxol and didn't see that patient until the last week of therapy, nothing would go wrong. I know that, because I know it. Is that better? And what do I do with all this stuff? How do, we, how do we make the technology help us deliver better care? Technology for technology's sake, listen, I'm old. I barely know how to use my phone. Technology for technology's sake is not a solution. The solution needs to be directed how we take better care of patients. And I'll tell you what, Fitbit does not help me take care of my patients.
I think that's true. <laughs> it has to be, there has to be somebody on the other end of that technology yeah. and it has to be a value to the patient and you have to demonstrate that it's reducing suffering otherwise. What's the benefit? Thank you. I want to thank our uh, sponsors. I want to thank AGMC. I want to thank my, my co-chair, Dr. Schleicher. Uh, I want to thank my father for making the trip from St. Louis. It means a lot to me. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I, want to, I want to thank our panelists and thank all of you for, for coming. I think this shows a lot about the desire to learn what's going on in healthcare and try to get ahead of it and not escape it, whether we know what we're doing yet or not. At least we're trying to understand uh, the status quo is changing and how to succeed. So this says a lot. Uh, thank you for everybody for coming and thank you guys for an amazing talk. For more about this issue, visit AJMC.com where we've included links to our IVBM stories in the show notes. To make sure you know about IVBM events coming near you in 2020, go to AJMC.com register to sign up for our personalized emails, breaking news, and invitations to our special events. Or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And if you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.